From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition episode 232 for the week of December 12, 2013. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Mary Jo and with me is Joe Cosgrove, good friend of the Disney Company and author of the book Walt Dreamer's Me. And this in this episode, we are going to be talking about Joe's um, experiences at Club 33 in Disneyland and a little bit about his book also um, that he has on sale at Amazon.com. Hi, Joe. Hey, Mary. Uh, it's a it's a Aloha and greetings from Lake Forest, just 15 minutes away from Disneyland. It's a joy to be with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about, um, as Ray Bradbury said, a world changer, Walt Disney, you know, and uh, I have to tell you, Mary, as a kid, I grew up on Disney films. I, I was born in, you know, I was born in 1930 and grew up in the Depression, and oh uh, I had four, yeah, I had four sisters Dad was missing it. Dad was, uh, I tell people he was an alcohol researcher, but Dad was rarely home. And so it was Mom and my four sisters. And uh, one of the first movies I saw was Snow White and when it first came out. And uh, it was amazing. And uh, then I saw Pinocchio. And then I saw Cinderella. And I saw Bambi. I saw all those films. And I dreamt as a kid one day I would love to go to California and see Walt Disney, <laughs> not realizing that one day I would be in the studio and I would be sitting next to the people that made those movies. That must have uh, been quite a thought when you first went there, right, to that studio and you realized that's a dream that you had had I as a, a child? Yeah, it, it was. A, I love stories, and uh, my, my aunt was the vice president of Sacconi Oil Company in the 30s, if you can believe this remark, and my mom's oh my gosh. older sister, and she put me on the stage as a kid and uh, taught me how to memorize scripts, and uh, actually a Hollywood scout saw me and said, I want to take Joseph out to put him on a screen test because he's a natural, and that's the one thing I shared with Walt, because both Walt and I were hams growing up. You know, Walt did the same thing. He liked to go to school dressed up like Lincoln and do skits and all that kind of stuff. And I was pretty much the same way. But I told I told Joshua Mador, who was the art director on Snow White, the special effects director for the studio and did special effects for Fantasia and Saga of the South and Mary Poppins. And well, he was the key guy in guys in integrating live action with animation. And uh, I was... I came to California to go to graduate school at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena after completing college at Wheaton in the Midwest. And after finishing grad school, I ended up being an on-air radio host at KPOL AM and FM in Los Angeles uh, in the 50s. And uh, Josh Metter and the folks at Disney had our station on because it was AM and FM, and we played, we were pioneers in playing, you know, Mary, uh, blocks of music without interrupts. I, I used to take music and tell stories with it, like much like Walt did with his storyboarding. And uh, we were the first station to pioneer playing blocks of music without interruption. 
on AM and FM. Wow. And our audience was from Santa Barbara to San Diego. And Josh Medar was one of my fans. And uh, one of my advertisers uh, on the station was the Highlands Inn in Carmel, which is a very famous resort in the Carmel Highlands, visited by people like Marlon Brando and Jack Betty and uh, so many famous people went up there because it was such a beautiful hideaway in the Carmel Highlands. And uh, I, I ended up doing all the radio and TV promotions for 30 years. And one of the first times I went up there in the mid-50s, I ran into this fellow, Josh Medar, who had his art gallery there because even though he worked at Disney, he was a seascape painter and uh, he had his art gallery at a former fire station and he came up to me and said, are you Joe Cosgrove? And I said, yeah, who are you? He said, I'm Josh Medar. Well, hi, Josh. And he took me up to his art gallery and I met his wife. Gorgeous paintings, beautiful He was a seascape painter. Now, have you guys seen, uh, remember uh, Fantasia? Remember yes. the Sorcerer's Apprentice? Uh, I was Janet and I. My wife were over at the back lot, over the, at the, the the movie studio, movie factory. I call it on Buena Vista, where I was in the fifties for about five years. And uh, we were over there recently with a friend who'd never been there, and we saw in the Pluto Theater they put up the screening of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And you know how he goes up with the buckets and he wears mm-hmm. the Sorcerer's hat and the buckets, you know, that goes up. All that water sequence, when you see it on the big stream, it gives you goosebumps. It's incredible. I mean, animating ocean is not an easy. And, re- and remember, guys, when 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 Josh Bedard walked with pioneering in animation, which is what they did, everything was done by hand. Wow. When you think there's about 24, it. There's 24 frames per second in a movie. That meant in Snow White, which runs 88 minutes, that for every 24 seconds, they had to have 24 cells hand-painted. So there were over a million cells in Snow White. Now, to, to put everything in perspective, Walt, you know, came out here from Kansas. He was born in Chicago in 1901, but he, you know, served, was overseas. But he came to California to follow his dreams. And I, uh, as you, that's why I write about him and Walt dreamers me because he was a big dreamer. And uh, Walt really pioneered cartoons. And uh, you know the story of how he uh, he created uh, Oswald the Magic Rabbit and Universal loved it and it did very well. And you know, everybody knows this, I'm sure it's familiar with the story, how Walt went back with Lily to, to, to New York on the train because way back then, and those days, there were not a lot of paved roads around the country, and trade was the way you went. And when he got back there, he found out that Universal had copyrighted Oswald. They owned it. And they said to Walt, we have a contract for you to sign. And they found out, of course, Roy's back chewing on the nails, wondering what's going to happen, because they've been making all their money off, off this Oswald. It's really, the studio really trying to take off. And, uh, and Walt looked at the contract, and they made him an employee of Universal. And he told Dick, make the, make the fellow was ready. He said, you know, I, I can't do this. And he said, well, we've copyrighted the red Walt was, you know, just getting started in the business, and he was unaware of this. And he just said, you know, I can't do this. And so he gets on the train with Lily, and that's on the way back. That's when he creates Mickey Mouse. Right. And Mickey Mouse is born in the era of sound, and Walt 
creates, you know, Steve Bell Willie. Now Walt draws it, and Walt is the voice of when you see when you go to Disneyland and go in there. That's Walt's voice doing Mickey on Steve Bell Willie. And from 1928 all the way into the 40s, Walt was Mickey's voice on all those cartoons. And by 1935, Mickey Mouse was the most famous movie actor in the world. And they were getting, Josh Madden told me, they were getting 10,000 letters a week to Mickey. You know, those were the days when the analysts would down and write it by hand. Right. And put a stamp and address it. <laughs> Kids don't know that because they're all on the computer with their little devices today. But in the, in the 30s, we were in the Great Depression, and Walt, for all of your listeners don't, may, may or not know this, but Walt not only elevated cartoons, but he was the first one to create merchandise with the movies. So there were all kinds of Mickey merchandise. As a matter of fact, I have a replica of the original Mickey watch and that was put up by the Ingersoll Company. And a good friend of mine from New York came out for my birthday here early this month and gave me uh, a replica of this Ingersoll watch. And in 1935, that watch company was very famous, but they were going to go out of business because of the Depression. And Walt got a hold of them and said, I've always wanted to put Mickey on the wrist. So he licensed them and he said, you know, you, I, you can't shut your door. How many people do you got to work for? And they said 300. And they were going to literally shut the doors. And Walt said, and today, by the way, the company's called Timex. And Walt said, run with this. Mary, in two months, the Ingersoll Watch Company went from 300 employees to more than 3,000 employees, and they sold more than 2 million Mickey Mouse watches. Oh, my gosh. So he saved that company. He saved that company. And stop and think about the direct and indirect economic uh, impact of that. And then the Lionel Train Company and uh, – I'm sure you are well aware of that company. It's very famous today. They were going to close their doors as well. And Walt had some model trains over. Josh would tell me about them. Actually, I've seen them over there of uh, uh, Mickey trains, Mickey circus trains. So he got the, he got a hold of them and said, "Come on over. I've always wanted to do a Mickey train. Take these, and I will license you." And the and the Lionel Train Company went from going to shut their doors to operating six days a week, three shifts a day, and they could not keep up with the demand. And uh, I'm glad to share this story because during the Great Depression, when Franklin Roosevelt had the New Deal and they were trying to do much of what a lot of government people try to do today with, you know, stimulating the economy, getting the government involved with all of this, Ralph Disney in the Great Depression created more jobs. He actually saved 117 companies. He created more jobs than all the government promises. That's amazing. And it proves the point that free enterprise, allowing people to follow their dreams, is what's made America unique in the history of the world. And I will tell you, uh, during that time, Walt was dreaming uh, about doing Snow White, and, of course, they made all these little shorts, you know, Mary, the little silly symphonies, right. and they were busy, you know, Walt's, you know, and he's, he's hired people, but he's thinking about doing a full-length feature film, and he tells Roy about it, Roy said, what? No one's going to sit, Roy didn't think anyone would sit still, you know, for something that's going to be a feature film, but he didn't understand what Walt had in mind. 
Walt had something totally different in mind. What Walt wanted to do was he wanted to take cartoons and turn them into animation. And, and in my book, I have a headline, and Walt Travis V, I have a headline which epitomizes what Walt was all about. The headline was, the headline reads, Snow White Dies, Clark Gable Cries. Oh. And as, as Paul Harvey would say, Mary, here's the rest of the story. Walt hired Josh Benner from Mississippi, who was a very famous painter, and made him art director, which meant that all the animators worked for him. And there were 300 of them, and they were, and they were getting re-educated by Josh and some other people that Walt brought in because he wanted to take, you know, the flat, dimensional, that you can see it on Main Street, but you go to see Mickey. He wanted to elevate it into a new art form, which we call animation, and turn character, turn the, the, the cartoons into caricatures of real people. You know, when you see Snow White, look like a real person, right? Right. And and stop and think about it. They had to uh, draw this woman. Remember, twenty-four frames per second. All those cells. All of every one of the. That, by the way, Snow White's the first time a human had ever been animated. You know, besides Snow White, the Queen, and the Huntsman, and the Seven Dwarfs. So Walt created a team. For each one of those characters, where half a dozen seven guys that worked on each one of those characters, and they're the ones. And so Walt, when he brought Josh in, Josh helped train these guys, and they, to make Snow White, they went from 300 animators to 600 of them. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and Josh would. T- Josh told me when I first came over the studio, he took me into the paint room, and he said, "This is the room you need to know about. It's a huge room." And he said, uh, Walt was so fussy about the color on Snow White that he sent guys over to Arizona to dig pigments out of the ground so they could have the best possible color because he didn't like the colors you could give the store. So that really makes the point that I would like all of your listeners to understand about Walt Disney. Walt Disney, he used to say he was plussing something, in other words, making it better. But Walt Disney, he strove... Excellence. He tried to elevate everything he touched. Like, you know, he took Snow White from the, the Grimm's Brothers and he turned it into a classic film uh, far, far better than the original story. And, you know, excellence is never an accident. And you can see that in the work of Walt. Yeah, high intention, sincere effort, intelligent direction, skillful execution, and a vision to see the obstacles as opportunities. And in the, making of, uh, in the making of Snow White, Walt really went forward with what, what another invention besides the uh, multiplane camera, which would take four layers of, uh, of cells. You could lay down the background, the middle, the foreground, and so forth. And Walt invented that, that multi-layer. But Walt also invented storyboarding, and everybody knows about that, picture boarding, you know? Right. And... When, when Snow White was being developed, and it took seven years, Walt had been thinking about it, there was no script. Walt would just act out. With the first night, he got a bunch of guys after hours and said, I got, a, I got an idea. Go have dinner on me. And back in those days, you could give a guy 50 cents and he could go have a nice dinner <laughs> back in the early 30s, you know. So the guys went across the street, had them, and he brought them back. Walt got up for a couple of hours, Josh, Josh told me later. And he, he went through and said, I want to do Snow White, and he acted out a lot of the characters, you know. And later, when they got serious about him, by really doing it, he had quick draw artists in the room. And as fast as 
Walt would describe a scene, they would make sketches and put them up on the wall. And so Walt was the guy that first created what we call picture boarding or storyboarding. And uh, if you if you have been over, if you've never been in the studio, they have some pictures of the of the storyboard walls. And of course, I've seen them many times over there. And just one whole wall full of pictures. Well, that might be 15 seconds on the screen, and because of all of the drawings you had to make, <clears throat> and uh, Josh, Josh told me that it was very intensive, and uh, Walt also did something else with Snow White besides, you know, better color and and elevating the the art so that you have Snow White looks like a real person, and you know when she, you notice when she talks. Her cheeks move, her chin moves, her eyes right. move. Or she's like a real person. All that was hand done. Guys would look in the mirror and they would play the audio. I have to tell you, they had a casting call and hundreds and hundreds of people showed up to do the voices of Snow White. <clears throat> and uh, Walt had a little speaker in his office because he didn't want to see them. He just wanted to hear the voices. And Walt literally picked out every one of those voices, just listening on the on the speaker, you know. And when you get when you get my book, Walt Dreamers Made, there's some behind the scenes stories that you can read about some of the great fun things they came up with getting the voices. But Walt also wanted to ha- have music in the movies that that was kind of a natural thing, you know, because he said, I don't want people all of a sudden to break out on music. I want it to be like. This is what you really do, because in a lot of movies, all of a sudden, someone would start singing. So if you see Snow White and you see the Seven Dwarfs and they go to work and they sing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's all, I mean, that's the most, you would do that. And when I saw that movie, I sang that song every day going to school, you know? <laughs> hi-ho, hi-ho. I told Rob and I told Josh, but I finally met him. When I grew up and I saw Snow White, I found out that there were bad people in this world, but love overcame death. And when I saw Pinocchio, I learned, be careful who you pick for your friends and don't lie, because if you do, you're going to get in trouble. And then I, when, I said, when I saw Cinderella, I saw the dysfunctional family and the family feud and all of that stuff, and I, and, and I learned, no matter what's going on, Stay true to what you know is the right thing to do. And, then, and Walt looked at me and said, that's why we made the movies, Joe. So there that's were true made. life lessons and not just entertainment. And yeah. not only the quality of the pictures that you're talking, but the message that um, is kind of intrinsic in these stories that he tells, right? Yeah. So, would you, so Barry, would you see... When you read the headlines, Snow White died, Clark Gable cried. Here's the byline. By the way, as you know, my book is written like Paul Harvey breaking news. Uh, my, I'm trying to be an original like Walt because I learned Walt was an original. I mean, Walt pioneered. Walt innovated what no one ever before had gone, and I've tried to do that in my life. And so these books I'm writing, uh, have a, uh, no one's ever done this before, where you write a book like it's – Breaking news. So when you read this book that I've done, when Walt's born, you're there. And he's going through all of his growing up times and all the challenges. You're on the journey with him. So the book is filled with some nice illustrations, eye-catching headlines, and short stories. And the byline, uh, after the premiere of Snow White uh, on, at the Conte Theater, uh, Walt told Josh better. He said, you know, last night Lillian and I sat next to Clark Gable and his wife. 
And when Snow White died, Clark Gable cried, and I knew we had done our job. Because remember what I told you? He wanted to go from cartoons to caricatures. And what Walt wanted to do, Mary, was touch people deeply in their heart and in their emotions. And I think he succeeded. Oh, yes, definitely. And, and through the years, I'm starting from Snow White, and I think every single film in one way or another has touched all of us. Well, yeah. And well, Walt always stole for excellence without uh, limitations, and uh, he elevated those fairy tales. He took them to a higher level of compelling, entertaining storytelling. And, you know, he was a student. He grew up, his dad was very active in the congregational church, so he went to Sunday school and he read a lot of the Bible stories about Joseph and Moses and Christ and so forth. And he realized when he, was, read the, when he read the life of Christ, uh, he saw that when people talked to Christ and asked him, like, who is God, Jesus would tell him a story, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is what is a good neighbor? Jesus would tell him a story. Uh, who is my neighbor? He would tell him a story. So Walt realized, hey, this is one of the greatest storytellers who's ever lived. I can do the same thing with today's technology. And I have to say to you, Walt really loved new technology. And uh, by the way, he was dreaming about Disneyland for 15, 20 years before it actually got built. And uh, stop and think about it. Stop and think about the billions of people that have gone to a Disney theme park and in uh, I noticed that Barbara Walters was out here from The View, and she was quoted in the paper saying, I've never been to a Disney park, and now I know why people love to come here, because when I came here, I forgot all my troubles and had such a happy time. Yes, that's why Walt built it. (laughs) And and we're still enjoying it years after that, when he built it. Say that again. I'm sorry, Mr. Barry. I said, and we're still enjoying it today, years after. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, absolutely, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, growing up in the Great Depression, living in, you know, living back in Boston, and uh, then finally coming to California, uh, I never never would have thought. I mean, it was serendipitous how I met these people. And the the lessons I learned at the Disney Studio, and I worked with Josh Better, they basically brought me in initially to do voiceover work. But eventually I worked with Josh on a number of short subjects and saw how he put the wonderful world of color together, and I learned a lot. And then later on in my career, when I went to work for three Fortune 500 companies, I took everything that I learned at the Disney studio and applied it to their advertising, to their annual meetings, to their literature, to their to the visuals in the corporate headquarters, and literally transformed them and turned them into made their brand far more famous uh, and um, they increased their market penetration because Walt's uh, technique of storytelling and of elevating and always striving to make something better stayed with me the rest of my life. And so every place I ever went to, I always strove to to do things uh, higher and better than before. I, I know before you mentioned before you went on the air, you mentioned about Club Thirty Three, and I, I'd like to segue over there when we talk about new technology because I'd like to share with your audience, if I might, Mary, the big role that the club has played in my life. I'd like to let's go ahead and talk about it now. The club opened in 
Yeah, the club opened in 1967, and by that time, I was with Harvey Aluminum in Los Angeles. I went to work for them, and uh, prior to that, I had worked with uh, Ronald Reagan and Senator Barry Goldwater, and I found out that Walt Disney was a huge supporter of Barry Goldwater, as were a lot of other notable people. And uh, uh, when I went to work for the Harvey Company, I had still kept my connections, and Walt had passed away in late 66 on December 15th, and uh, I got a call from his office, um, from the office over there at the, the studio, the day, the week before the club was going to open, saying, you're on the list, go ahead over and check it out. And uh, I went over there, and uh, the first, when you, when you first went to Club 33, in those days, everybody wore a suit and a tie. Uh, that was a dress code that everybody observed. We had our own parking place uh, over near the dog kettle uh, where you park your car, and there was a gate just for, for guests and Club 33 members to go into. And uh, nobody knew about it. And uh, Walt had picked out the menu. Walt had, had actually had the place built while he was alive, and he supervised it. You know, the, the, the trophy room contained a lot of his memorabilia, and there was a lot of original... There's the artwork on the walls where the club first opened. And when you walked in the door, the maitre d' had a tuxedo. And mm. the, table, the table settings were elegant. Uh, there was sterling silver flatware with the words Club 33 engraved on them in silver on the silverware and on the, you know, on the, uh, the, the creamers and the salt and pepper shakers. And the glasses were all crystal with Club 33 on them. Um, the buffet was served Tuesday and Friday and Sunday only, and the least expensive item on that buffet when the place first opened, because of Walt's wanting to have the most over-the-top dining experience possible, because that was his whole objective. But the least expensive thing was $500 a pound caviar. That oh. was the least expensive. Yeah. And that goes to show you how over-the-top he was, and uh, there was a gal named Connie who played the harpsichord that's in the park. She played, She was there every day, and she knew I'd worked for Walt, and every time I'd come, she'd play all my Disney stuff that I liked. But the, 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 the environment and the cast members and the service was better than anything I'd ever seen. Walt wanted it to be the best possible experience, dining experience, and unfortunately he never... But he had picked out the chefs, he picked out the menu, he, he bought, you know, had the elevator that he saw in Paris, and he got up the engineers to make a blueprint, of, get the blueprints and build it, but the place was very, very elegant, and in those early days, nobody knew about the club. I never talked about it. Most of the members, Mary, were people that had invested in the park, you know, like Arco, Carnation, Hallmark Cards, Kodak, Sunkiss. You know, all those of Monsanto, you know, all the original concessionaires, those were mainly the members that were there at the time. And I got to meet, because I, I knew the president of ARCO. He was a friend of mine. Now, the interesting backstory to Harvey Aluminum is Harrison Price. You know his name, don't you? Right. They called him Buzz, right? Yeah, Buzz Price is a window on Main Street, and, and, and Janet and I were over there with it was put in earlier this year. Harrison worked at Harvey Aluminum before I did. When he graduated from Stanford, he went to work for the Harvey family. 
He traveled the world for them. And he was with them for five years before he decided he wanted to start his own business. And the Harvey family, he did great work for them, which I, which I talk about in the book. But Harrison was an amazing marketing guy, and his first client was Walt. And so he came to the Harveys, and he said, I want to start my own business. And can, I'd like to still be a consultant. But I, and they said, great. So they owned the Subway Terminal Building, which is a huge building in downtown L.A., and they gave Harrison a suite there. And when I went to work for them, I went over to deliver packages frequently, and I would meet with Buzz, and we got to be pals. Uh And one of the first times we got together, we spent a couple of hours together, he said, working for the Harvey family prepared me for working for Walt Disney because they were so attentive to the tiniest details. They knew what they wanted. They would not tolerate anything inferior. They always wanted to have the best possible product. And he said, I never would have been able to work for Walt had I not worked for the Harvey family. And uh, he not only traveled the world for them, Mary, but he managed the Milan, Tennessee Ammunition uh, Facility, which was 26 acres square miles back in Tennessee. And, and, and Buzz was the, was the manager of that place, an incredible operation. And uh, as I say, he traveled all over the world for the Harvey family, which ultimately he would do for Walt. And he told me many, many times that working for the Harvey family prepared him for working for Walt because Walt, like the Harveys, was a stickler for not only honesty, but making doing things the best possible way, right? Right. So I'm a, I, I, I go to the club. And by 1975, I am now with another Fortune 500 company called General Automation. And some of the engineers of General Automation had worked with Walt on creating Lincoln. So the, the, the guy that would you know, his fingers in his hands. And when I was at the studio in the 50s with Josh, I remember I came into the office one day after I got off my broadcast shift because I was only over there uh, after hours. I have a fell over Lincoln's head that they were working on. And I said, what in the world is this? And he was saying, well, we're working on an audio-automatronics robot of, of, of Lincoln. Well, later when I worked for General Automation, I found out a couple of those guys had worked for the company. Now, General Automation was just 10 minutes away from, from Disneyland. And some of the owners were charter members of the club. They came in a little bit after I was there. And... Uh, when I came on board, Mary, this company is about to change the world. And for all of you folks that are listening, when you go use an ATM and you go to the bank, this is the company that launched that. They're the ones that are about to provide the digital revolution. This is the company whose founders were the first ones to create the computer on a chip, the motherboard, and the first operating system for the computers. So when Stephen Jobs was going to get his company going and when Bill, uh, the fellow up there that started uh, Microsoft, when Bill was going to get that going, mm-hmm. they, went, they went and got the, uh, they got the technology from General Automation, which had licensed it to Motorola. And uh, so when, when I was there, Mary, and I was going to launch the automation of banking, and the first bank we were going to do was the bank that had invested in our company in the first place, Bank of America. They put $3 million into the company when it started in 66. And as I say, I, I knew some of these people, but I didn't come on board until the mid-70s. And when the company went public in 1969, he turned 
the bank turned in their, their stock for $180 million. And from that point on, he called it generous automation. So I just about backstory. We invited them down to the club. I took over the trophy room. And uh, I'll never forget it because I stood up and I said, gentlemen, your life is about to change. Banking is no longer going to be from 9 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Monday through Friday. It's going to go 24-7. And they had no idea what I was talking about. And so I they told were just, them, I'm, go ahead. Yeah, I said, you're going to take banking to the people. And then, of course, they, they, they had already seen the written proposal, and we were taking them over to the plant after lunch. But the reason I wanted to take them to the club was, by the time these, all these executives, from, by the time they walked out Main Street, walked out of Club 33, and they were members of the club, by the way, because they, the, they were Disney's bank, they bankrolled Snow White, uh, they were like little kids. And we had a great briefing session about how we were going to, you know, connect all the, all the branches together and how banking was going to people could do banking in supermarkets and airports. And that was a revolution. You know, this is a revolution. Um, six months later, I talked to Jim Lowman, who was the manager of the club at the time, and said, Jim, I want to take over the club from one evening in August. Can we arrange? Sure. So I said, I want to take it over from 5 to midnight because, uh, Mary, I found out that 500 newspaper publishers were going to meet at a convention in Anaheim. Now, I knew some of them. I knew Otis Chandler because he and I were both Jonathan's. I was a member of the Jonathan Club in Los Angeles. And uh, I sent out engraved invitations to 500 of the America's top, you know, from the New York Times, the Honolulu Advertiser, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, Houston, all, all these publishers. And you know what? All 500 of them showed up. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had we staggered it on the little, I sent out engraved invitations, you know, and some would come at 5 and some would come at 6.30 and so forth until we got them all in there. And I, I told the guys, in essence, what I said, gentlemen, we're about to change your life. I said, visualize a sports writer sitting in Dodger Stadium, and he's got a keyboard, but it's not a typewriter. It's a keyboard that's part of a computer. Now, this is all new. You understand, personal computers don't come out until the 80s. We're talking 1975. And I said, in this computer, we have a layout, we have a syntax checker, we have a spell checker, and this, this keyboard is also going to have a monitor. So he can look, instead of looking at a typewriter, but he's going to look at the monitor, and as he writes his copy, it'll, the, the spell checker will correct his misspellings. And then when he's done, he can send this copy over to a database, which we're going to put elect a digital database in your company. By tele in those days, it was by telephone. Today, it's by satellite. And I said, we're going to change your, the way you, you publish a newspaper. From now on, rather than having it all, you know, linotypes and hand-type printing, it's all going to go electronic and digital, and it's going to save you time. It's going to save you money. It's going to make it more efficient. So the launching of, the, of automating banking around America and the world and the launching of the automation of publishing all was done at Club 33. And that's affected the whole world. It dramatically affected the whole world. When you look at the electronic scoreboard, we did that. Uh, electronic cash registers, we, have a hundred, we had 100 patents. And, of course, that goes back to what I was saying about Walt. 
Walt loved innovation, <laughs> you know, and he truly was an amazing guy because he was always trying to, you know, what's coming. And if he was alive today, he would be on the cutting edge of everything. You know what I mean? Right. Well, because he felt that imagination had no limits, right? And he did it. He created to match his imagination from what I have seen in his movies. Um, Like you said, he created jobs that had to come from his imagination, parts that we enjoy today. Hmm? Yep. 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 You know, there's a story about, I have to tell you, Somebody asked me, I was being interviewed a couple of weeks ago, so when he says, why is Disneyland the happiest place on earth? Somebody asked me that, Mary. And I said, I have to tell you, uh, Walt Disney is our bridge from fantasy to reality, and he changes our perception of both of them. And when he created and built Disneyland, the first theme park of its kind ever, fantasy, became reality. In Disneyland, he taught us that what we really do live in is a small world after all. Now, I, I, had, I, had, a, I had a big Disney Club 33 nut fan who lives in the Bay Area who stayed with, with Janet and me, and he brought his 12-year-old son with him. And uh, I said to him, uh, why, why do you think, why do you think, and I have to share this with you, why do you think Disneyland is the happiest place on earth? And he, here's what he said. I liked it so much I wrote it down. When you are not in Disneyland, you are not what you really are. When you are in Disneyland, you're a kid again. <laughs> oh, that's so true. And, you know, Walt wanted, you know, he put all in, of course, he loved Fantasyland because all of the things, you know, Pinocchio and Snow White, he loved those attractions. And, uh, but he loved kids. And, uh, he wanted, he wanted families to have a clean, wholesome place to take their, their kids. And he knew that they would have a blast on the attractions. But more importantly, he knew that they would interact with other people. He knew that they would have an, uh, fun on interactive rides, that they would do things together like the canoes or, 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 you know, walk around in the various lands. And uh, I have to tell so many people, Walt was not only a dreamer, but he was a doer. And he took his dream for Disneyland and made a picture, and that's how he raised the money, to buy the real estate that, that, that Paris and Price said, this is where you should build the park. Because Walt had no idea. And, and, and Buzz told me, he said, the first time I took Walt down from Burbank to the Arch, down a, Anaheim. It took us a couple, two and a half, three hours to get there because the, the freeways went through then. And he said, I took Walt through all these orange girls and Walt said, looked at me and said, are you, are you sure this is, <laughs> are you sure this is where we should be? Because, because Harrison had looked at the whole country, you know, and finally decided this, in Southern California, this would be a great place for it. Not, not Burbank, where Walt had originally thought about it. And he had done his homework, and he said, no, freeways are going to come here. Orange County's got to blossom. It's a perfect place for you to do it. And he was right. And there's something magical about Disneyland, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's Walt's, it's Walt's original dream come true. You can feel the energy and, uh, when you go over there, you know, to the park. But 
I wanted to get back a little bit on Clip 33 itself and some yeah. of the experiences that you have actually had there at the club. You know, you've been a member since the inception, which is amazing in itself. And I'm sure you've seen so many changes over there and, and um, seen so many people and talked to so many cast members. I know that when I, I, I spent uh, an afternoon with you, it seemed to me that everybody knows you, which was pretty cool in itself. And I wanted to ask you, in Club 33, um, some of the cast members that you've worked with, or not worked with, but um, have dealt with, have any stood out in your mind? Of- well, there's a, there's a group of them over there. There's Angela, uh, there's PJ, there's Randy, there's Robert. Uh, these kids have all been there the last 30 years, and they are they are part of the magic of going to the club. Now, the first first 15 years before these guys came along, the original cast members, I got very close with them, and I got to know them. And I, when they gradually began to leave after 15 years to go off, I missed them because they had become such a big part of my life. And we got to know each other because when you dine at Club 33, it, 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 the way Walt wanted it, he really wanted you to have a special experience. So the cast members are part of the key element of making that happen. You know, it's great to have the sterling silver. It's great to have great gourmet food. But more importantly, it's having world-class service that where they anticipate the guests' every need. Uh, in those early days, if you got up and went to the buffet line, by the time you came back, everything, you know, if something was on your plane that would need to be taken, it was gone, your napkin had been refolded. Uh, I mean, if you were sitting there and you were having a certain kind of a drink or a certain kind of beverage, you never had, I mean, they constantly were attentive to everything. And in those early days, uh, a lot of the, the were real entertainers. Uh, they would, they do all kinds of skits and they would tell us oh. all kinds of things. And, and uh, they all knew me as a, as a, a gangster because, when I was at the studio and I was at Harrison, we were always cracking jokes and telling, you know, and so when I would go up there, I would tell them stories and they would reciprocate. And, oh, yeah, what, my, my, Janet just came by and said, one of the people that is notable in my life is Gene Howe. Gene Howe was there early on and he worked in the club. And we, this was back there in the 70s, and Gene Howe is one of my closest, dearest friends today. I've seen his kids grow up. He became a television producer for me, producing some TV shows for me, and um, including my last interview with Steve Allen. And he went on to work at the Home Shopping Network, where he was the big kahuna there for production. Uh, he uh, has worked at the... Uh, you know, the uh, over in Vegas when they do the Consumer Electronics Show, he has gone over there and handled all the media for years. So and, he's, uh, he's moved around um, doing a lot of things. What did he do at the Club 33? Of course, Jim Lohman. Jim Lohman was there yes, uh, as, a, as, a, as a cast member. Then he became manager. Today, Jim is uh, runs the uh, Plaza Inn where they have the character breakfast right there on Main Street. And Jim's been with the company for 45 years, and we're still good friends. Wow. And as a matter of fact, he's a, there's a picture of, 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 of him and I. And, and that's, I think that's one of the key things about the club is um, 
you get to know these people. You get to know them as people. You know, they got children. You know, they've got dreams. And uh, I, I mentioned some of them, like Randy and Robert and Angela and uh, uh, and Steve. They're, they're just, you get to know them as, as people, and they're, they're just outstanding. And uh, they're, they're a very essential part of the success of Club 33. And uh, I'm, I'm concerned because, as you all know, as you know, we talked off this the club is going to shut down here after the first of the year for a major, major rehab. In the past, it shut down for maybe a couple of weeks, but now it's going to shut down, I've been told, from January 6th to early summer. They haven't given us a, a reopened date, but they have shown us some sketches of what they intend to do as they expand the uh, the, the club and, and uh, rehab it. So... Can you share any of those with us, or is that something that they're asking the members to keep um, well, to yourselves? No, well, no uh, they are they're going to expand the club, make it large. They're going to uh, have a lounge area that they're working on, and that's why they have to shut it down, because you know what the angel staircase is there? Uh, oh, yeah, the, angel, the staircase in the angel's floor. They got that closed down because they've got to change the opening and uh, – a lot of the stuff is a work in progress, and uh, uh, they've got some good ideas, but you know as well as I do, it's a work in progress. So what they showed us, the pictures they showed us, they were still working on them. They were still, so I'm sure they're going to, but the whole idea is they, they have told me they want to elevate the experience, they want to uh, enlarge the, the capacity. Uh, so we shall see. Uh, you know, Walt, was, Walt always knew things, like you said, there's always going to be change, right? And right. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully, uh, the club will, you know, it, it's in a way, you know, I love the place because I'm going there a lot. And, and, you know, all these years I think of Walt because all his stuff was in the trophy room and a lot of his stuff was on, his artwork was on the walls until, of course, when he died, Lily and the family and Diane wanted to get a lot of it, so it's gone now. But... Uh, every time I walk to the club, I think of him, and uh, I know they're going to change the entrance, and they're going to so it's going to change, and time will tell whether or not they can keep the uh, the elegance and the world class atmosphere that Walt intended it should have, and they 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 work they were I must say they're working very hard at it, and they've looked at Walt's original plans and things, and uh, they're doing the homework. So I wish them well, you know. I wish them every good success. Are they bringing back any of? The, I know it's been years since they since they built it, but are they going to the original blueprint blueprints when they um, expand the club? Well, they, they're know? going. Yeah, they're going to the original concepts that Walt had for certain things that never did happen, and they're saying they're going to make it happen. And uh, so, you know, we shall see because uh, they tell me that he wanted to have a little jazz, you know, lodge there, and so we'll see, you know. Well, well I, I, it's hard. It's hard to to know uh, what to say because the work. The guys are really working very hard on it, and obviously they put a lot of time and they're spending a lot of money on it. So, hopefully, it will be terrific. I, at least I hope so. You know. So let me ask you a couple of questions regarding Club Thirty Three. Um, your favorite memory of Club Thirty Three. Well, my favorite memory of Club 33, well, I have a lot of them. I have a lot of them. I uh, was hiking in Yosemite, 
And I met a firefighter from Florida in 1967, in the summer of 67. And the club opened up that spring. And I was hiking up that summer in Yosemite, and I was coming down from the Mist Trail, and I met this guy from Florida with his family, and he'd never been in California, never been in Yosemite. And so we had lunch together, and I took him, I, I took him around. I talked about the Mist Trail, I talked about the Half Dome and uh, Nevada Falls, and you know, Ansel Adams, where he did, shot a lot of pictures, and I talked about the trails up there, some of the trails that you want to walk on. I told him about the hike up to the top of Yosemite Falls. I said, that's a tough one, so I don't know whether you can do it. And, <laughs> and before we left, I left to come back home. I said, where are you going to go next? He said, we're going to come down and go to Disneyland. And I said, well, when you get down here, call me. So I called up, and those were the days, Mary, when guests of the, of the club got complimentary admission tickets to Disneyland. That was part of it. For 47 nice. years, that was part. When you dined at the club, you got a complimentary, because a lot of people just come and dine and then they leave, you know. And some stay, but a lot have to go back to their office. So when he called me, I said, when you go over tomorrow, go over to this gate, tell me your name, and you are going to be my guest at Walt's Private Club at Disneyland with you and your family of children. And uh, he did not know what to expect, and he went. And that Christmas, I got a Christmas card from him from Florida. I've never forgotten it. And it said, Dear Joe, we've never been in Yosemite. We've never been in California. We've never been in Disneyland. But the biggest delight of our trip was meeting you. You made it really special. Oh, nice. I've tried to do that. Uh, over the years, I've had kids in there from Make-A-Wish Foundation, from the Children's Hunger Fund. I have had men either coming or going to deployment around the world. I have had all kinds of Marines and military in the club. Uh, I've had people who were terminally ill that I have brought into the club and arranged for them to be my guests there. Uh, and I have, as you can imagine, uh, my wife Janet has been saving these. I literally have thousands of thank you letters, and, of course, now we've got emails. But over this many years, uh, Putting, putting servicemen who have fought in combat for our country and uh, having special plates made up by the chef up there honoring them for their duty to God and country has been one of the special highlights as well as putting in many people who are no longer with us but whose, whose big dream had always been to go to the club and that somehow they come. I've been going there so long and I've done so many television shoots over the years in the park that I've gotten to know so many cast members. And it just, it's one of those things that just, you know, I, I did uh, Circus of the Stars Goes to Disneyland. I spent a couple of weeks over there with Sid, Sid Smith, who was directing Bob's Christmas special when I was over there in Burbank. And that's how he met. And he said, hey, I want you to help me with the shoot. And I want to, I want to dine in Club 33 every day. Every day we're on the shoot. So that's another fun memory is being with him. We were shooting that special, two-hour special, Circus of the Stars Goes to Disneyland, and I got to meet a lot of the cast members. And one of, the, one of my great fond memories of Disneyland and, and out under the club is Rod Miller. I met Rod Miller when he first came to Disneyland. He was the first original and only full-time ragtime piano player that the park has ever had. And I got to know Rod. We became friends. And as a matter of fact, I've, I've digitally, uh, with my digital high-def camera, I have recorded every single 
all of his arrangements of ragtime songs, and I'm going to be putting them up on my, on our Facebook so people because there's never been anyone like him. He uh, he self-taught. Uh, he took all the great Disney songs and rearranged them into ragtime, you know, from Cinderella, from Mary Poppins. He's taken all the Christmas carols and other songs that that, that are play patriotic songs like George M. Cohan and turned them into rags. He, oh, I've I've heard him at the at the park. Yeah, he is amazing. He was the Liberace was a friend of mine, and Lee Lee told me once in an interview I was doing with him. He says, "You know, Joe, I'm not a great piano player, and I appreciate you playing my music on your station, but I am a great entertainer." And he showed me all about his wardrobes and everything else. And he said, "See this? This is my wardrobe." And by the way, my wardrobe director is the guy that did all the jumpsuits for 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 Elvis. Because when I went and met Elvis, he was wearing black jackets, and I said, "You need to have your own distinctive look." So. Uh, uh, Lee was uh, a guy that knew, was a great entertainer. Well, that's what Rod Miller was. When Rod Miller sat at Coca-Cola Corner playing, you know, he was there five days a week, playing eight hours, you know, he was there for eight hours. He was full-time. When he played ragtime and double-time and triple-time, it was unbelievable. I mean, there's never been anyone like him ever. People would come up and they couldn't believe this is a person playing these incredible songs. And when Walt, when he was playing, he was smiling. He was looking yeah, at people. He was engaging people. Kids were coming up and sitting on his lap and doing. And people would come around and dance. And then, and they would. Say, well, when he was there, the place was mobbed at Coca Cola Corner because he was an entertainer. He would actually get guests to come up around the piano with coins. And he would do uh, uh, dance numbers from movies, and they would click on the coins to do the, the you know, <laughs> dance routines like with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And right. well, he would be aside. They would they would keep rhythm with the coins. But he he to me was a consummate engage. They'll never have anyone like him. And I I I, I, I would I would hope someday that the Disney company would put a window up. On, right over there at Coke Carter with his with him on it, and if I, with today's technology, if I had a magic wand, Mary, I would like to see a giant, big screen right over there. And when there's when there's no live, when there's no live uh, ragtime piano there, they can play Rod Miller. And I I have told the Disney company I will give you all my master tapes. They're all high quality. They're all in stereo. They're crystal clear, and. Uh, He's pure magic, so that's another one of my memories about uh, about not only the club but Disneyland. That is really neat. Yeah, I had the privilege of listening to Rod Miller too, and I agree with you. I think he was a true Disneyland treasure oh, while he performed uh, over there. And it's great sure. Disney uh, cast members on the on the uh, Mark Twain and on the rail. I Chan over there that does that does the uh, Lily Bell tour when I bring guests on the Lord Walt's private. Ken is another incredible cast member. So there's great cast members that I've gotten to know over there that are really true Disney spirits. They love the guests. They entertain them with stories. They go out of the way when something happens uh, with the guests. They they really have Walt spirit, you know? I agree. I've, I've seen a lot of them there, and even the, some of the new cast members who – who work at Disneyland that have that spirit. And there's something special about Disneyland itself and that Walt Disney engendered with it. It's, you can just feel it when you go to the parks. And I I think 
people like you too, um, that we have the privilege of meeting that kind of bring that spirit to and, and everything you do. And I, I love when I was walking around with you, the twinkle in your eye and, and the spring in your step when you, when you greet people and there's true real smiles on their faces when they say hi to you. So that was a, that was a real treat for me. So, uh, you know, I, thank, thank you. You know, I, I think, you know, in my book, cause you've got my book, I tell a story of the friendship between Walt Disney, Ronald Reagan, Bob Hope, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and how these guys changed the history of our world because Roddy never had, and I knew Roddy very well before he ever ran for governor or president when we were working for Senator Goldwater and we were working on projects together. Uh, Walt and Roddy were very, 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 very close. They were very much alike. They were God-fearing, patriotic Americans who loved our country, and above all, they were honest. They were unpretentious, and they all strove. When I did a shoot with Roddy up in Sacramento, I had sent him the script, and I said, I'll bring up cue cards because we didn't have teleprompters then. And when we went up to do the shoot, he had taken the script and rewritten it in his own thing, and when the, when the cameras rolled, he didn't even look at the cue cards. He had already memorized it. And uh, when he became president and teleprompters finally came, I noticed he never used them because Bonnie spoke from his heart. He, he, like Walt, was a heart person. He knew what he believed in, and he would look right into the camera. And that's why he was the greatest communicating president in my lifetime, because when he looked at the camera, Mary, he was talking to, from his heart to yours. And I will tell you, in real life, you will not meet more honest men on this planet than Bob Hope, John Wayne, Walt Disney, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Stewart, salt of the earth, unpretentious, honest well, as the day is long, and what you see is what you got. They weren't phonies, you know. They weren't one thing in public and another thing in private. They were genuine. Uh, you know, it's like one of one of Walt's friends was Billy Graham, and he had Billy took Billy on a tour, and he told Billy, uh, "This is the real world, Billy." Yeah. <laughs> right in there, they had a great time together. But like like Billy Graham. These men all had moral transparency. And I, I have to tell you what Ray Bradbury wrote about Walt, if I might do that. He, you know, Ray Bradbury was um, a famous science fiction writer, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he got to know Walt. And uh, he, 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 he said, he wrote down, he said, Walt Disney has done more good for our world than the most all politicians who've ever lived in terms of imagination and culture. And you want to know something? He's right. <laughs> I think he's right, too. Um, your book mentions a lot of these people, and I'm not going to say all the articles because I think people should get your book and read about the um, different people and the influences they had on each other, including the story of Walt Disney and Bob Hope and Ronald Reagan changing history. So if they um, get your book and they read it through, they'll see exactly what was done um, that affected not only California but the United States. When you think about it, or oh, the whole uh, the whole world, Mary, and yeah, the whole world. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for that because people can, we we Janet and I self published this book because we wanted people to be able to afford to get it. So all I got to do is go to Amazon and put in the word Walt Dreamers B, and you'll see a, a whole bunch of reviews, including stuff from cast members. 
some notable ones. That one from a federal prosecutor who writes about how how this book has touched his uh, changed his life. Uh, this is a man that deals with terrible cartel drug lords that has to be he and his family have to be protected in safe houses periodically. He comes down to Disneyland three or four times a year to restore his senses, to be get his perspective back. And when he got our book, he said. Having Walt Dream as me is like a day in Disneyland, and I, I had so much fun to read, and I learned so much from you, and that's what well, we intend. We wrote this book, you know, to make it fun for everybody, and not not to be boring, you know. I think I think you succeeded very well in that. You have um, the like you said, it's um, Paul Harvey. It's it's you're telling the story, and then you tell the rest of the story, and you give a little bit of history in it, and you give hope in your stories also, which. I really found inspiring when I was reading it. So I think um, we're going to have a link to Amazon.com in our show notes so that people can go there directly um, and, and read the reviews and, and order the book. It's also on, I, I also have it on my Kindle because I didn't want to restrict it to the hard copy. So I got myself a hard copy and I have it on my Kindle. And what I found it really, um, I have to do a lot of travel for my work and it was real easy for me to, to um, read a couple of chapters and then put it away and read it again and yeah, not have right. to worry about where did I where did I leave off, you know, so. That's why we, we wanted to do it, Mary. I have a professor uh, at Indiana University, and when he got the book, his eight-year-old kids got it. He said, I can't get it away from them. So we wrote it for kids of all ages because, you know, Walt left the world a thousand times better than when he arrived. He, he was optimism, and... If you want to do something good, he did something good, and he knew that if he did something good, that someone may imitate him. And I've tried to imitate Walt because I cannot imagine living in this world without Walt Disney. And he's my hero. He's my role model. He was a flawed human like all of us, but you know what? He was honest. He strove just, I mean, look what he did. I yes. mean, it's un. I mean, the Disney theme parks are the greatest real estate developments in the history of the planet. And they've brought more happiness and more joy. Uh, you know, I've had people come to me from China that have been talking to me about wanting, you know, what they wanted. They'd like to see more of this. And I think the Disney company is going to get over there, which I think would be great because Walt's approach, storytelling approach, is universal. Right, Mary? Yes, it, it's it's it transcends language. It, it, I've had guests come from other countries to Disneyland, and they don't need to understand the words that are being said. The the pure joy on their faces uh, when they've seen um, Fantasmic, for instance, and seen some of the attractions and show, shows is just really, really um, it, just like sharing for you or some of your fondest memories sharing Disneyland for me is part of my, the best memories I have of the park also just the pure joy. The end of your book says um, sharing life's lessons where you kind of sum up some of the influences that you have. I'm not going to read it. People will have to get your book, but I will quote the quote that you uh, have by Walt Disney that says laughter is timeless. Imagination has no age and dreams are forever. And, oh, yeah. and thank you for taking the time to write this book and sharing your time with us, Joe. Um, there's so many stories that you have, and I, I would love to listen to all of them. So I'm just gonna have to I'm gonna have to find you in the park. <laughs> so okay, well, we'll so we get can, together. And, oh. Well, thank you, Joe, very much for um, talking with us on the 
Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition. It's truly been a pleasure and um, blessings to you and your family. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be with you, Mary, at any time. And I look forward to seeing you in the park. Definitely. That will do it for the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition with Joe Cosgrove and his book, Walt Dreamers Me. You can find Joe's book on Amazon.com where you will read more of his stories about Walt Disney and his company. Links to his book will be in our show notes. Thanks for listening. 